Turn with me as you're being seated to James chapter 2. I got to let you know, we talked about this as a staff, pastors and directors this week, and we spent about two and a half hours kind of working over James chapter 2, and I, I promise I won't keep you that long. But, oh, it's just so much to cover. So I'm, I've trimmed as much as I can, and uh, I'll try to end on time. There will be a question and answer after the 11 o'clock service if you want to come back and uh, discuss it. But let's dive right in. Let's put it in context. Go back to last week. We talked about justification by faith last week. Paul summarizes what he's talking about very clearly in Romans chapter 3 and 4. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. We maintain that a man is declared to be in right relationship with God by faith and by faith alone apart from works of the law. Remember, righteousness, we said, means to meet a standard. And the standard, according to Romans chapter 3, is the glory of God, the very nature and character of God. You cannot meet that standard in your own works. You cannot add to the work of Christ in meeting that standard. You have to receive Christ's righteousness freely as a gift. Don't add anything to it. Paul couldn't say it more clearly. Romans chapter 4, he gets into the example of Abraham's life. And it's really more than an example. It's a paradigm. He says this is the way it works for everyone. Abraham stands as a paradigm for every man, woman, child that's ever existed. Abraham has nothing to boast about before God. He didn't earn anything according to his works. And he summarizes his point in chapter 4, verse 5. He says, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who declares righteous the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. To the one who does not work, Paul says, faith and works are completely separate if you want to be declared righteous in God's sight, if you want to be put back into a right relationship with God. It is just through faith. Faith alone in Christ alone. And God says, you are in right standing with me. Your sins have been removed, and you have eternal life. And then James shows up. (laughs) <laughs> oh man, would have been great. You know, we think, oh gosh, man, this really complicates my theology. What do I do with this? James says, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And how in the world do you put the two together? Well, uh, Martin Luther was writing a preface to the book of James and he said this, James contradicts Paul by teaching justification by works. St. James' epistle is really an epistle of straw compared to St. Paul's letters, for it lacks this evangelical character. And he couldn't quite bring himself to throw it out of the canon, to say, no, it's not a part of the Bible, but boy, he was really tempted. So he did rank them, and he said, Paul is up here and James is down here. And he never really could get to the point where he was able to comfortably put the two together. How do we do it? Can we accomplish what Martin Luther could not? Hmm. Well, we're going to give it a try. All right. Where do we go? How do we start? If you're looking at a really difficult passage, you're looking at it, let's say it's an easy passage in your eyes. Where do you start? Told you last week, context, context, context. That's everything. Okay. So let's look at the book of James. Look at James chapter one and verse one. James a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Most important thing to recognize in terms of context is who's the audience. Who is James writing to? 
Well, apparently he's writing to Jews. He says, these are the 12 tribes who have been dispersed abroad, the 12 tribes of the diaspora. He is talking about Jews who have been forced for one reason or another to leave Palestine. I think he's also talking about Jews who are Christians, who are believers in Jesus Christ. Verse 2, notice he says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Some have said, well, he could just be talking about just Jews because Jews called one another brethren. Turn to chapter 2 and verse 1. He makes it clear. He says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. These are Jews who are believers in Jesus Christ. So, 15 times in the book of James, he calls them my brethren or my beloved brethren. 15 times. As you're studying the book of James next time, you should go through and circle every time that he calls them brethren. And he tells them that you are brothers and sisters one to another because you are in Christ. He's looking at his audience as Christians. If James doubted their salvation, what would he do? What would you do if you wondered, is someone a Christian or not a Christian? What would you do? Present the gospel. Okay? Would you tell that person, you need to persevere in doing good works and overcome sin and temptation in your life? No, you start with the gospel. You don't see the gospel in James. James doesn't talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you believe in him, you have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. James doesn't do that. He's talking to people that he personally is convinced are believers. That's critical, I think, to understanding the whole flow of thought in the book of James. So you start with the audience. Who's the audience? Jewish believers. And it's important to understand as well that they're Jewish, okay? Jewish Christians in the first century. Second thing we have to look at is the purpose, okay? Why is he writing? Look with me in chapter 1 again in verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. These are Jewish believers in Jesus Christ who are undergoing trials, and they're really struggling. And they're not always doing well. They're giving in sometimes to temptation. The trial is becoming temptation and is leading them into sin. Look in verse 13. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted, nor can he tempt anyone. God doesn't do that. So these are believers who are undergoing trial and temptation. They're being tempted with some very specific things as well. They're being uh, tempted to uh, show favorites to give preference to rich people and look down on poor people. They are being tempted to not use their tongue constructively, but destructively. Look at chapter 3, verse 8. James says, No one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. They are experiencing uh, jealousy amongst one another. They have conflict in their relationships. They are selfish and self-centered. They're presumptuous and prideful. They are greedy. This is a group of believers that are really not doing well spiritually. And sometimes we read the book of James and we see it kind of as a series of spiritual nuggets and wisdom. Rather than seeing, no, this is a letter that's written to a group of believers, a specific group of believers, who are really struggling with sin and temptation. And they're not doing well. 
Matter of fact, they're coming under the discipline of God. Look at chapter 5, verse 14. James says, Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. Now, James is not saying that every time you get sick, it's because of sin. But he is saying, with this particular group of believers, some of you are sick and even approaching death because of your sin. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another because what you're experiencing is the discipline of God in your lives. Third, they are facing judgment. Or God's evaluation of their lives. Chapter 5, verse 9. James says, Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Judgment of your lives is imminent, believers. God's right there. He's about to evaluate. So they are a group of people who are in need of repentance. James is calling them to repent of their sins. Look at chapter 4 and verse 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of God and he will exalt you. He's saying, confess your sins to one another. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Let's deal with the sin issues in this group of believers. Okay, that's the setting. So, more broadly, James is writing because these are believers who need salvation. Okay? Give me chapter 1 and verse 21. It says, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. Now, when you hear that phrase, save your souls, what do you think? What's the first thought that comes in your mind? Salvation from what? Hell, right? Right? Salvation from hell. Let's get out of hell. So maybe we're wrong. Maybe James isn't assuming they're believers. Maybe he's not sure if they're believers. And he's saying to them, you need to get saved from the penalty of your sins. You need to get out of hell. Right? Isn't that, I mean, honestly, every time you read James, you see that phrase. Isn't that, that's just what pops in your mind, right? I'm going to try to argue, and I think I can prove to you, that getting out of hell, escaping hell, never crossed these people's minds. As first century Jewish Christians, it never crossed their mind that James was talking about get out of hell. Remember, they didn't have uh, their whole New Testament written. James is one of the earliest books written. So they didn't have 2,000 years of Christian theology behind it so that, you know, when we hear the word salvation, what do we think? Immediately we think, get out of hell, right? They didn't have that. They had their Old Testament And most of them probably read their Old Testament in Greek better than they read it in Hebrew. Because these are Jews of the dispersion. They're living outside of Palestine. They are living in the Greek-speaking world. So they are reading the Greek Old Testament. And when they heard the the phrase, salvation of your souls, they had an immediate connotation that came from the Old Testament. I'm going to illustrate this for you. Okay, These are the references. You can write them down and and go back and look at them later. Uh, These are just a few. This phrase, salvation of your souls, is, is throughout the Old Testament. 
I'm just going to give you a few illustrations. And I spread them out. You know, we've got here uh, Genesis and then Samuel, so the period of the judges, and into early kings, uh, prophets, and then the book of Proverbs. Okay, we'll start with Genesis. Genesis 32.30. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life or my soul has been preserved. My soul has been saved. Jacob, remember, was wrestling with God. And he's wrestling with God and he says, great, I prevail, now I won't go to hell. (laughs) Is that what he's thinking? Is that what he's saying? No. He's saying, I wrestled with God and I saw God face to face and he didn't kill me. I didn't die physically. Okay? My soul or my life has been saved or preserved. I didn't die physically. That's what he's thinking. 1 Samuel 19, Then Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, If you do not save your life or your soul tonight, tomorrow you will be put to death. So David, if you don't run away from Saul's men, you're going to go to hell. Is that what he's thinking? No, he's saying, if... I don't get out of the house, I'm going to get killed. I'm going to die. I'm going to lose my life. Ezekiel. When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity, and dies because of it, for his iniquity which he has committed, he will die. Again, when a wicked man turns away from his wickedness which he has committed and practices justice and righteousness, he will save his soul. He will save his nephesh. He will rescue his life because he's turned from sin and living a foolish life, which results in consequences on the earth. He's going to rescue his life or save his soul. He won't die. Proverbs. The one who guards his mouth preserves his life or saves his soul. The one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. James have anything to say about the mouth? He's got a lot to say about the mouth. Or doesn't he? And what he's going to say about the mouth is, you can destroy your life and the lives of others with your tongue, so save your soul by keeping your mouth shut. That's just a real simple principle. And it's throughout Proverbs, and Proverbs is everywhere in the book of James. Okay, it's everywhere in James. And this is the mentality. Proverbs 16. The highway of the upright is to depart from evil. He who watches his way saves his soul or preserves his life. If you walk in the path of righteousness, generally speaking, your life is going to work well. If you walk outside of the path of righteousness, you know what? Your life is not going to work well. You're going to experience obstacles and frustration. You're going to have conflict in your relationships. All of these things that James readers are experiencing because they're not walking in the path of truth It doesn't work because God has rigged the universe, right? He says, this is the way it's going to work. It's only my way. You want a life that is blessed and works well and you want to live long? Well, you can prolong your life, he says, if you live righteously. Is that always true? No. No, but generally speaking, if you live righteously, you will extend your life. Righteous living is healthy living. It's wholesome living. Okay, that's proverbial. That's the mindset. Chapter 19. He who keeps the commandment keeps or saves his soul, but he who is careless of his ways will die. So, when they heard this phrase, salvation of their souls, what did they think? It never crossed their mind, get out of hell. that, That never even entered their thoughts. What they thought was, wise living is healthy living. Okay, save my soul. A very vivid illustration, uh, came out just, uh, just a short time ago, uh, Steve McNair, 
He's quarterback for the Tennessee Titans. On the field, extremely successful life. Off the field, he began to make very poor choices. He uh, was married and he had uh, young children and he picked up a mistress who was about half of his age and he started drinking heavily. And one day, things were not working well in his relationship with his mistress, so she took out a gun and she shot him twice in the chest and twice in the head and then she killed herself. His blood alcohol level at the time was twice the legal limit and his life was over. Now, I'm not making any comment about was he a Christian or not a Christian. That's not the point. The point is, if he had been at home with his wife and his children and not drunk, he wouldn't be dead. Okay? That is the perspective of the book of Proverbs. Generally speaking, if you live wisely, your life will be extended and you will be blessed. And generally speaking, if you live poorly and you make unwise choices, your life will be shortened and you will experience obstacles and frustration and discipline from the Lord all along the way because he says, I'm not going to let life work for you that way because that's not consistent with my character. So when they hear salvation of the soul, what are they saying? Rescue my life from the consequences of foolish living. That's what they're thinking. Look at James chapter 1, verse 14. James makes it really clear. General principle, he says, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. We're responsible. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. Now stop right there. I I pursue the lusts of my flesh and what happens? I make decisions and I sin. But that's not the end of the story. He says, then when sin is accomplished or when sin becomes full-blown, when sin reaches its logical conclusion, what happens? It brings forth death. So James looks at his readers and he says, some of you are sick and some of you are even dying. And the reason is that you are choosing the path of foolishness and God's consequences are coming upon your life and your life is about to be evaluated. So step back, okay? Repent and change your pathway, you believers. How do they do that? Well, look with me in chapter 1 and verse 21. We read this earlier. Now, I'm going to put it now in context of the book of James. He says, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. Where is the word? No, look at the text. Where is the word? It's implanted, right? He's talking to Christians. He's saying receive, or, or, or literally the idea is embrace. It was a word that was used of welcoming a guest who's in your home. Make them feel at home. The word that's already implanted in you, embrace it because it's able to rescue you from the consequences of foolish living. How? Verse 22, by proving yourselves to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. It's great. You know, you're Jewish believers and you know lots of the Bible, but that doesn't save your soul. What saves your soul is actually putting it into practice. Okay? And that's what will rescue you from the consequences of sin and make your life fruitful and productive because that was God's design for you. Verse 25, the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. The other background for James is the Sermon on the Mount. You see themes from the Sermon on the Mount all through it. It's talking about blessing. 
Do you want all that God has designed for your life, the, the abundant Christian life? Well, then become a doer of the word and not just a hearer because you're fooling yourself. You're fooling yourself. And God's design for your life is that he would bless you and that you would be a reflection of his character to the world. Look at verse 18. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth, or he created us, he recreated us, gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. That's God's design for your life. Okay? He caused you to be born again so that you would be the first fruits. You'd go out, out into the world and people would say, oh, okay, that must be what God is like. And that's what life is like when you live according to God's design, consistent with his character. That's God's design for your life. The problem with these believers is that they're not living consistently with what they already know of the word of truth. And so as a result, they need to be saved or rescued from that. Okay? So let me put the, the, the whole message of James in a sentence for you. James is talking about responding in tr- to trials and temptation in wise obedience will result in blessing and deliverance or salvation. Responding otherwise will result in conflict, frustration, discipline, and possibly even death. But responding in wisdom will result in life and blessing. Okay? That's the overall context of James. Okay? That's just context. Now let's get to chapter 2. Okay? But I don't think you can understand chapter 2 unless you put it in the context. All right? So chapter 2, verse 14. What is James saying? What use is it, my brethren... If someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? Oh man, James, there it is again, save. You hear the word save, what do you think? Get out of hell, escape from hell. Is James talking about escape from hell? I don't think so. How do we know? Well, let's look at the context again a little more closely. Look at the paragraph before 2.14, chapter 2, verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty, For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Oh man, it's even more complex. Judgment. When you hear the word judgment, what do you think? Go to heaven or go to hell, right? Is he talking about God's decision to send some people to hell? I don't think so. He's talking to genuine believers and he's talking about their lives coming under judgment. I hope he's not talking about judgment to decide heaven or hell. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Yikes. I resign. (laughs) I'm done. Okay? If he's talking about heaven and hell, there's a lot riding on this message. Right? Way more than I want to carry. That's not what he's talking about. John Piper would say he is talking about heaven and hell because Piper only sees one judgment. He doesn't see that there's a judgment for believers and a judgment for non-believers. He just sees one judgment. And when he looks in this context, he sees judgment based upon works. What do you do with that? Well, you say that salvation is by faith alone, but at the end, you've got to have works with it because you as 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 a person, you're going to be judged not just by faith, but by works. And that will determine whether you go to heaven or whether you go to hell. And I think he completely misses the point. There is a judgment for believers, and it's only for believers. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. If you believe 
that Jesus Christ died for your sins, then you have the removal of your sins and you possess eternal life. And you will be before the judgment seat of Christ. And God will evaluate your life based upon your works. Okay, Good works, as we're going to see in James, that God's power does through you, but you will be evaluated according to your works. Not to determine, do you get to stay in heaven, but your reward or your loss. Okay? Heaven is determined by faith and faith alone. There's another judgment for people who choose not to believe in Jesus Christ. It's called the great white throne judgment. And if you choose to reject Jesus Christ, you are there at the great white throne judgment, and you are also judged according to your works. The degree of discipline or punishment from God, we're told in Revelation, is based upon the books that are opened and your deeds are read before the Lord, who knows them all. And discipline or judgment is relative. It's based upon your works. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're at one judgment called judgment seat of Christ. If you are one who chooses to reject Jesus Christ, you're at the great white throne judgment. James is talking to believers about the evaluation of a believer's life. Your life will be evaluated. So 2.14, he says... What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works, can that faith save him? Save him from what? Well, 12 through 13, save him from a merciless judgment at the judgment seat of Christ. Do you want a merciful judgment when God evaluates your life? Well, one of the criteria is going to be how merciful were you to others? And then in 14 through 26, he's going to give you other criteria by which your life will be evaluated. So the context is judgment, but not heaven and hell, the evaluation of a believer's life. So let's keep reading. 2.14, he says, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? In 14 through 26, James is going to have, he's going to have one argument, and he's going to say that same argument five times. And then he's going to illustrate that argument five ways. Okay? So one argument stated five times, illustrated five times. Let's just read the argument first. 2.14 is the first statement. 2.17, he says, Even so faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. 2.20, faith without works is useless. 2.24, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. 2.26, faith without works is dead. Okay, same argument Five different ways. Let me summarize it like this. Faith and works are inseparable for salvation from a useless life. I think this is James' point. Faith and works cannot be separated, and you still have a useful, profitable life in the sight of God and in the sight of man. They can't be separated. They are completely inseparable. Okay, that's his essential argument. Faith and works are inseparable for salvation from a useless life, and a useless life is one that God will evaluate at the judgment seat of Christ, and as he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it will be wood, hay, and stubble. (laughs) It'll be nothing. But if you live well, it will be gold, silver, precious stones. So he's talking about salvation or deliverance from a useless life, and he says it five ways, and then he illustrates it five ways. So let's go through the illustrations. In eight minutes. Five illustrations. We got about a minute per illustration. Uh, that's why we're going to do Q&A. Okay, the first illustration is the easiest to understand. Chapter 2, 15 through 17. He says, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, 
And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Verse 20, he says, faith without works is useless. Faith without works is dead. What he means by dead there is useless. It's of no practical value. Troy comes to me and he says, I'm hungry and I'm cold. And I say, be full and be warm. (laughs) See ya. He's, I'm still cold and I'm still hungry. Jesus says, no, give him your cloak and share your food with him. How else can he see your faith? Okay? It is a useless faith. It is, in other words, of no practical value to your brother or your sister in Christ. And I can't call Troy a brother unless he's a Christian and I'm a Christian. Okay, so he's talking about care for needy brothers and sisters, needy Christians. That's his first illustration. The second one is the hypothetical objector. Um, if we have a minute at the end, I'll cover that. Otherwise, we'll do it in Q and A, and Q and A will be on. Uh, we'll put it on the website. Okay, this is. I think these are three of the absolute most difficult verses to interpret in the entire Bible. Okay, so I'm going to read them. I'm going to walk you very quickly through what I think, and we can argue about it later. All right. Someone may well say, this is a very common rhetorical device. James is putting up an objector. Uh, You see the same kind of technique if you look in Romans 9, 19 through 20, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 through 36. And one in 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 36 is the most clear. The objector is saying something different from what Paul is saying. Right? Make sense? Paul is saying faith and works are inseparable If you want to have a useful life, the objector is going to say faith and works can be separated. Does that make sense? The objector is saying something different from what James is saying, and then James is going to thrash him and say, you're a fool. Okay? Very common rhetorical device. The problem with this understanding this passage is that there are, there's no, there was no punctuation when James wrote this letter. Okay? There were no quotation marks there were no periods, semicolons, question marks. As a matter of fact, there weren't even, even capital letters to tell you when a sentence began. The whole verse, the whole book was written all in capital letters and no spaces between words. Okay, so you just take the whole thing and go like that and, and put it all in capital letters, no spaces, no words, no quotation marks. So the quotation marks that you see in your Bible were inserted later. When does the quotation begin? Everybody agrees on that. When does it end? Nobody agrees on that. Okay? But I think it's pretty clear rhetorically that it, be, that it ends at the end of verse 19. Because James comes back in verse 20 and says, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Okay? So, James says, an objector may say, you have faith and I have works. Period, end of quote, if you're reading NIV. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. Period, end of quote, if you are reading New American Standard. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe in shudder, period. End of quote. Brian Gregory Fisher, College Station International Version. That's where I'd put it, all right? Okay? And what's critical here is, verse 19 is in the mouth of the objector, not in the mouth of James. Okay, so we don't want to base our theology on what the objector is saying. The objector states his argument in 18, and then he thinks he proves his point in verse 19 when he says, 
You, James, believe that God is one. You're orthodox. And you do well. Or in other words, you do good works. If you look at chapter 2, verse 8, exact same phrase. You do well. James, you believe. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. You believe God is one and you do good works. Well, the demons also believe and they do no good works. They just shudder. You see, James, I've proved my point. Faith and works can be separated. You have faith and you do good works. The demons have faith. They don't do good works. Faith and works can be separated. And James says, you're an idiot. (laughs) You missed the entire point of the argument. You can't have a useful life that God evaluates as useful and profitable and beneficial if you don't have faith and works. Okay? Now, we can talk more about that, but I really want to get to this one with Abraham because this is the, this is the one that, that intersects with Galatians 2 so significantly. Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Verse 21 again, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? Where does that story occur? Anybody? Genesis, that's great. You should all know Genesis. Now, what chapter? 22, thank you. Genesis chapter 22. Write it in your margins. Genesis chapter 22. Now, verse 23, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. When does that occur? It's Genesis also. I'll give you that hint. (laughs) Before or after chapter 22? Before. That's Genesis 15 verse 6. You should write that in the margin. James is arguing from Genesis chapter 22. Paul's not arguing from Genesis 22. Paul's arguing from Genesis chapter 15. The moment of faith. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Then his life continued to move on and God stretched Abraham's faith and sometimes he responded well and sometimes he failed. He tried to give his wife away again. Right? That wasn't a success. You know, that didn't work well for him or his family or anything else. His wife said, take Hagar, my, my servant, and have a baby with her. With, with her. That didn't work well for him. He, it was a rocky road, okay? He believed God and he had a relationship eternally established with God in Genesis 15, but then he had some bumps along the path and God was stretching his faith and growing his faith. Chapter 22, verse 1, it says, God tested Abraham. God was testing his faith and Abraham came through like gold. He took his only son in whom all of the promises rested and he laid him on the altar realizing this is not a a baby, this is a boy. He's 12 to 15 years old. He's fully aware of what's going on. I've just been bound and strapped on top of an altar. There's fuel underneath me and my father is raising a knife above me and Abraham is, he is following through with God's command and then he stopped. He stopped. And because of his love for God, which transcended even his love for his son and all of his hopes and dreams, he was called the friend of God. And so all Jews look back to him and they say, Abraham is the friend of God. Christians look back at him and they say, he's the friend of God. Even Muslims look back at Abraham and say, he's the friend of God. He had a unique relationship with God and they praise him. They would not have done so if he had not followed through with faith. See, his faith was demonstrated by his works. 
So, as James says, you see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. So the scripture was fulfilled or came to completion, which began in Genesis 15, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, and because he obeyed, he was called the friend of God. So what James is saying is, there is a justification in the sight of men that is only through faith and works. And faith and works cannot be separated for you to demonstrate your righteousness or your relationship with God if you have faith only. But he's not contradicting Paul. He's talking about two completely different subjects. Paul and James aren't talking about the same justification. Paul is talking about justification in the sight of God. You cannot add works to it. To the one who does not work but believes His faith, his faith alone, is reckoned as righteousness. Don't add works to that justification. James is talking about justification in the sight of men. Do not take works away from that justification. So you'll notice, verse 24, he says, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. We'll we'll throw in just a little bit of grammar here. Okay, not a lot, just a little. The word alone at the end of the sentence is an adverb. Adverbs modify what? Verbs. That's awesome. Very educated crowd. Adverbs modify verbs. Where's the verb? Well, you know what? It's, 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 it's omitted. Very common in Greek because it's so obvious and implied. The verb that should be in the second half of the sentence is justified. So what he's saying is you see that a man is justified by works and not justified only by faith. Okay, let me read that to you again. You see that a man is justified by works. That is, faith and works. Okay, Because James isn't talking about works in and of themselves, but faith and works combined. So, you see that a man is justified by faith and works, and not justified only by faith. He's saying there is a justification that's only by faith, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the justification that's by faith and works. And so much confusion is brought into this discussion because James and Paul are talking about two different things. Justification in the sight of God that establishes a permanent relationship with God is by faith and faith alone. Justification where I demonstrate my relationship with God in the sight of others is by faith and works. And if I want to have a useful life to others that God evaluates as useful when I stand before him, then it's got to be faith and works. You can't separate the works from faith. And if that didn't all make sense, you can come to the question and answer afterwards. And we'll talk about it some more. But let me make a few application points. Okay, I'll go two minutes long. Four minutes long. It's wonderful to me that Rahab is the next illustration. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? He goes from Abraham as an illustration to Rahab. And in case you forgot who Rahab was, he puts it in there. He says, Rahab the harlot, right? Who was Rahab? Well, she was the one in Jericho who welcomed the spies. And they said, we'll rescue you. We will save your family's lives if you hang this scarlet cord out of the window. So when we come and attack the city, we will rescue you. We will save you. If Rahab had not exercised works with her faith, what would have happened to Rahab? She would have died physically. 
She may still have been a believer in Yahweh. We're told that she believed in Yahweh because remember, the stories about Israel's uh, escape or, or rescue from Egypt preceded Israel. So all the nations around hear what's happened to Egypt and then what happened to Sihon, king of Bashan and Og and these other kings, and they're, they're trembling, they're afraid. Rahab heard these stories and she chose to believe in Yahweh and she believed and then exercised works and as a result, she saved her family. She rescued her soul. Not only that, but she's brought into the camp and does anyone doubt Rahab's faith? No. Everybody knows what she's done. They know who she is. But she saved her soul and the remarkable thing is she goes on in the history of Israel and she shows up a couple other times, doesn't she? She's in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Wow, that's grace. Isn't that amazing? Because works were combined with her faith. And then his last illustration. Just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. You see a body that has died. Do you say to yourself, there was never a body there? There's no body. No. You say, there's something wrong with that body. Because it should have the spirit united with it and it should be up and moving around and active and fruitful. So faith is the body. Works are the spirit that animate the body and cause fruit to be born. And he's saying it is unnatural for the two to be separated just like it's unnatural for faith and works to be separated. Faith and works are inseparable for salvation from a useless life. That is James' point. And if you don't understand all of the details of the illustration, it's okay. You can still understand this is the point of the argument. So I'm going to give you three really fast applications. First, you can have complete assurance. You can walk out of here today knowing that you have a relationship with God established forever. And you don't look at your own life and say, have I done enough good works? You look right there. Christ is down from the cross. Praise God. It is done, it's finished, it's complete. He paid the penalty for your sins and your relationship is established. And you can walk out of here with absolute and complete assurance. Second is, you've got great accountability. Because Jesus made such a great sacrifice for you and he will evaluate your life, you have great accountability. Live well. Love your neighbor as yourself. Third, there's perfect power. God's not asking us to go out and do good works in our own strength. As a matter of fact, those aren't the kind of works that he calls good. And we'll talk a lot about that when we get to the book of Galatians. You can do works in the power of your flesh, that's legalism, and you can do works by the power of the Spirit that really please the Lord. Okay? And that's what God will look at someday and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Okay? Let me pray for us. Father, we confess that our understanding is, is incomplete and we, we do our best, but Lord, um, we are finite creatures. I pray that you would continue to uh, bring us understanding, but beyond understanding, that you would bring us wills that are submissive so that we would become doers of the word. And Father, I pray that uh, as we go out, you would give us great confidence, but also a healthy fear of you that you will evaluate our lives and we want to live well and we want to have you say one day to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Father, thank you for Jesus who gives us this security. It's in his name we pray, amen. God bless you.